and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. I'm Shabnam. Today, we will be exploring the landscape of diagnostic technologies through our chat with Brianna Ronco, chairwoman and CEO of Group K Diagnostics. Group K Diagnostics is overhauling the diagnostic process to improve outcomes for both patients and physicians. With point-of-care testing and fast results across a suite of various diagnostics, their premier product, the Chroma Health Kit, improves the quality of care while also addressing the cost of care for patients. To date, Group K Diagnostics has raised $4.4 million from angel investors and grants. Today, Brianna will share her experiences in starting this life sciences venture as an undergraduate at Penn and her journey in building this successful company. Brianna, thank you so much for joining us today. It's nice to speak to someone about your experiences as a young female founder and CEO of a healthcare diagnostics company in Group K. So just to kick things off, would love to hear about what inspired you to start your organization, Group K Diagnostics. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. I really appreciate it. So Group K Diagnostics was started three years ago out of my experience working in an HIV clinic. I realized that a lot of our patients weren't able to get the diagnostics they needed either in time or the results back to them. And as I look through the rest of the healthcare industry, both in the developing world as well as the developed world, I realized this was more of a universal problem. So I took my technical experience, which was in microfluidics, and I joined that with this need that I saw and combined it to start a paper microfluidic platform, which is the core of Group K Diagnostics technology. Got it. Got it. And these sort of experiences are so valuable. And oftentimes we've been speaking to different women and their stories about what prompted them to start a company. And a lot of time it it comes from personal experiences and certain observations that they have. But it's often difficult to kind of translate your observations and your experiences into a company. So what made you decide to kind of pull all of your experiences together to start a company? Were there people or resources that you refer to in that process? Yeah, so I'm a really big believer that you can't solve a problem if you haven't at least seen and been involved with that problem. I think that hands-on experience in the medical field is essential to solving essentially healthcare issues such as diagnostics. I think I'm a researcher by training, so I originally intended to just create a device and publish it in a paper and have somebody else carry it on because that's what you do in academia. But it was actually a mentor of mine that suggested that if you just publish something in academia, it stays in academia. And um, translational research through academia takes a really long time. It still does, but it took even longer back then. And he encouraged me to take the technology out myself and translate it into a company. And I was like, okay, that can't be too hard. We can do that, right? And I did that on uh, February 14th, 2017. And I did not know what I was getting myself in for. I have learned so much along the way. I work now primarily on the business side and not as an engineer anymore. But I could not be more grateful for the lessons that I've learned. That comment about academia really resonates with me because as a medical student, 
I see a lot of folks, they get bogged down by publications and putting their name out there. And of course, getting their name in the academic community is very important, but their impact almost stops there. It sort of relies on another person to take the torch and and follow through with designing a solution or addressing a particular way to translate a research discovery into a clinical reality. So that is just amazing to hear that you were able to take the inspiration from your mentor and your story and and move forward. That's very exciting. Yeah, and it's not to say that academia and publishing papers aren't important. They're extremely important for basic science research. We would not have basic science research without that. But I think that there needs to be more of a focus on teaching engineers and other academic clinicians that publishing a paper isn't the only option. There's another option to bring the technology into mainstream use or to translate basic science into something that's applicable for their patients. Totally agree. It amounts to impacting more people at the end of the day, which, you know, they've made such an amazing discovery and being able to use that discovery and apply it to so many more people is just in everyone's best interest. That's what wakes me up every morning is how can we impact even just one patient? You bet. So transitioning a little bit into the logistics, could you tell us or help us conceptualize the current standard, I guess the standard in 2017 for lab testing? Who are the stakeholders involved in this process as, say, a patient wanting to get a standardized lab panel? And what are the incentives of these stakeholders? Sure. So sadly, what was in 2017 is what is today as well. Your insurance tells you when your doctor prescribes blood work where you can go for labs. That has opened up a little bit, but depending on what quality insurance you have, you might be capacitated to one facility, you might be capacitated to LabCorp or Quest. I personally am capacitated to one local Philadelphia facility, which makes things very difficult. People put off their blood work. They're too busy. It's inconvenient. They don't want to go during a pandemic right now. Or just the simple fact of they're nervous. They don't want to get a needle stuck in their vein. Needle phobia is actually a lot more common than we think it is. So that is the standard of care today still. The stakeholders that we have to deal with, obviously, are the patient. They want their test results back immediately. They don't want a needle stuck in their arm. Also, the physician. In a survey that we did a couple of years ago, physicians were spending one to two hours of their time every day calling patients back or releasing results to them because every abnormal result needs at least a follow-up call from the physician. And because physicians just don't have enough time for this, this is not billable hours, there was another study done that said over 36% of abnormal results are never returned to patients. Obviously, those can be minor things, such as, you know, a number being one or two higher than it's supposed to be, or that could be somebody's cancer test. So that is a concern, and, and doctors are certainly invested in getting point of care in their clinics so they can give patients results back and change of care plans faster and eliminate the time they're spending at the end of the day to get those tasks done. The third stakeholder obviously is unique to the U.S. and aside from some other developed countries in that we have to deal with payers. We have to convince multiple private payers that point of care diagnostics is something that they should reimburse, that it gives more efficient, more time-sensitive care to their clients. Thankfully, we can use our FDA approval to get approved under existing CPT codes, but that is still a force to be contended with here in the U.S. I was speaking to somebody in the U.K. in the the morning, and they were like, yes, for the U.K., you just have to convince the NHS that your product is, you know, worth it, and that's difficult to do, but at least you're convincing one system and not five million systems like you have to in the U.S. And I think part of that struggle with insurance is communicating how much cost they're saving in using your technology 
So you did allude to a few research pieces, but is there literature that quantifies the extent of this issue in that patients miss testing for a given indication or diagnosis, and this translates to X amount of money? And has literature been available for that type of analysis? I haven't seen any literature on that analysis, not to say that there isn't that literature out there, but certainly diagnostics is known as the four cousins of pharma. There's less focus on it, even though I would say it's more important to diagnose somebody and prevent an illness than it is to treat an illness once it occurs. That that's just not the mindset in the U.S. and it hasn't been focused very much in the literature. It's something we certainly hope to do um, once we receive FDA approval is to do a study like that to show how many outcomes that we can impact and change by having change of care plans happen immediately rather than, you know, weeks to months down the line. Right. Okay. And what would you say your competitive advantage is at a high level? Of course, we'll get into the technology itself, but what is sort of your mission and and your offering that surpasses LabCorp and Quest? Sure. So, I mean, immediately off the bat, we're a point of care. We're located in the office. You're not going to a separate facility. The second, we don't require a significant amount of training. We are a finger stick. That allows, you know, people to perform the test right by a medical assistant, just like you would with a glucometer or a glucose test. And then third, we don't require refrigeration or table space or training or calibration, all of those things that make it difficult for providers to adopt one of the few very expensive point of care systems that exist today. Great. That's very helpful. And how did you go about attaining proof of concept for your idea with Group K Diagnostics? So proof of concept is a little bit different in the diagnostics field. It takes a lot longer to get to. So you start by building a rough prototype. We had a rough prototype. We showed some initial preclinical work on it. And then that prototype has evolved over the years to our final product today. And then after that, we send it through more rigorous prototype type testing. And then after that, we send it through FDA trials. And then once it goes through FDA trials, you can finally submit it. And once we get our approval, then we can finally market. So there are more loopholes to jump through as a class two medical device than where we to start an app or a non-healthcare focused product. But we are also blessed that class two medical devices and diagnostics are not as stringent as going through like a pharmaceutical evaluation. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I personally am only well-versed in the pharmaceutical approval process. So I'm, we'll, we'll get to it later on in our conversation about kind of the specifics of, of that regulatory pathway for devices. But just to kind of take a step back and, and think about the technology itself, you provided a wonderful overview in terms of the proof of concept for your idea. But want to start at kind of like the beginning of building the technology. Can you kind of walk us through how you started that journey? Sure. So my background is in traditional microfluidics and immunology. So I had a lot of experience with building lab on a chip type devices, more focused on like PDMS, which is type of silicone substrate and glass microfluidics. But I realized that that kind of manufacturing process wouldn't work for a large scale diagnostic system. So that's when I started looking into paper microfluidics and I was able to be taught by several professors in the field, some of the basic principles that have been figured out back in you know 2016. I took those principles and then I thought, how do we scale that up both for manufacturing as well for a usable product and really just started tinkering around with that and playing with that to come up with the first iteration of the device. That device looks nothing like the device that we'll submit to the FDA this fall, but it's important, I think, when you are building a prototype to tinker with it. It's not always an equation. It's not always a set in stone. Sometimes it's going with a gut feeling and figuring out what part of your device or what part of your aesthetic needs to change. 
Give us an example of that. You mentioned aesthetic. So is it the appearance of the device or is it just some sort of calibration associated with the device? Give us a little bit more detail. Yeah, so the first iteration of our device, it's paper microfluidics. It does not need to be placed on cardboard or acrylic to work. It can just be a thin piece of paper. But physicians really didn't like that because they thought it was flimsy. It was so far away from what they had seen previously. So we've added, at that time, we added an acrylic backing to the device to essentially say, hey, it's sturdier, even though the acrylic did nothing. It kind of got past the roadblock that paper could do something that was so significant because people were convinced that the paper had to interact with the acrylic in some way or there were some kind of channels in the acrylic and that made a better presentation to our customers. Our prototype now looks different than that original device, but I think that example was very much so looking for physicians to get feedback on the aesthetic and what they wanted to see. So you've done a lot of the design and such in the tinkering, but how did you think about whether you wanted to produce this in-house versus outsourcing? Like what were you doing before? What are you doing now? What's the go forward plan? Sure. So one of the big issues with microfluidics is that it's very difficult to manufacture them to scale. They are extraordinarily small and often very detailed in how they're put together. So you need somebody skilled manufacturing them, which is just not scalable to make a cost-effective diagnostic. Where paper microfluidics comes in is it's easier to make an assembly line and a chain system that's able to quickly manufacture and print these devices. And we were able to make an almost fully automated assembly line that was unique and patentable to us. It's one of the major areas that we patent. So given that we own the technology, we decided to continue to manufacture them in-house rather than trying to explain an outfit to a contract manufacturer all the steps that needed to be done. So um, we currently have a space that's being outfitted on two floors above our lab space that will become our initial manufacturing space. Oh, wow. That's very impressive. It's amazing how you're doing this as a student. It just, it really is mind-boggling. I was. I graduated in 2017, so I only did it for one year while I was a student as well. But still, that first year is critical you know, even though the company morphs quite a bit and oftentimes the product is very, very different compared to what you start with, it's a huge deal setting up that infrastructure and figuring out what is the long-term plan. So that's just, that's amazing to hear. How did you go about measuring the accuracy of your technology and, and whether it, it worked properly relative to the standard? So the FDA is really clear in this. There are a lot of guidelines that they lay out for in vitro diagnostic devices that we have to meet, both in repeatability, reproducibility, stability, shelf life, sterility in certain cases. And their protocols are honestly very clear. We just you know, adapt them to our device and then we use that information and their criteria to determine whether or not we're fitting the standard of care. Okay. And is that by indication that you're going after? In some cases, it is by indication. There are obviously, you're looking for specificity and sensitivity for a positive or negative test where you're not looking for that so much in a quantitative test. So they do differentiate in that regard. There's also differentiations in what ranges you have to be able to measure how accurate you have to be within those ranges, depending on the clinical significance. But there is a lot of loose guidelines and a lot of carte blanche within that. Right. Makes sense. Maybe we can talk about this later, but like the clinical trial design, is it that they're going to use patient samples and use your device versus the standard and sort of compare whether there's a difference? And then, of course, these long-term variables like shelf life and ranges and all that, is that sort of the setup or is it 
different. So method of comparison is one of the tests that the FDA requires. You choose a standard of care method, and then you compare your test against that. And then there's a series of regressions and plots and statistics that you need to comply with in order to pass that test. But that's just one of probably about 10 or 15 different studies the FDA requires. They even require that you make sure that electronic devices such as computers or cell phones don't interfere with the accuracy of your device. Wow. Very complicated. Complicated, but clear once you get the hang of it. Yes, yes. Some high-level questions for you. Do the results from the technology in the long term, could they feed into the uh, electronic medical record? Have you kind of begun very preliminary, of course, conversations with EHRs, which is quite a few, and see if they're amenable to doing this? And maybe other companies have done this before? Sure. So integrating to the EHR is a priority of ours. It's much easier for physicians if results can go right there. And it's something that we've already started working on to be ready for, for post-commercialization. But the, there are several companies that are kind of an intermediary between us and the EHRs. So we integrate with that intermediary. And then that intermediary integrates with all the EHRs. So that certainly takes some of the burden off of us. Obviously, every hospital has their own EHR. There are some that are more commonly used than others. We'll target those more commonly used ones initially, but also we have the capability as we bring on customers to customize it to them. Can your technology suggest further tests or imaging based on the results it provides? Like, is there predictability inherent in the technology? There is. We do lose a lot of machine learning techniques. We have a great data scientist in-house. That is something we're pursuing in the future. Right now, the FDA doesn't really have any guidelines for a technology such as that, and there really is no pathway for that to be approved. However, we are necessary to work with the physician's guidance on the results that we give, but that is a technology that we think is the the frontier of healthcare as it stands today, and we're hoping the FDA catches up soon. Got it. And which tests does your technology measure today, and what does the rest of your product pipeline look like moving forward? Sure. So we focus on two main areas, metabolic and molecular testing. So metabolic testing is our flagship product, the comprehensive metabolic panel. That's your liver, your kidney function, glucose, electrolytes, kind of the stuff that your doctor orders every time you see them. That's our current focus is on the CMP. Our pipeline in the future also includes things like thyroid testing or cholesterol testing, those really common tests that you know 70% of labs are made up of. Our other side, molecular, is based largely out of a collaboration with the CDC on developing a first-in-kind test, point of care test for Zika. That is a technology based on isothermal amplification that we hope will enable quicker diagnostics for rapid diseases, particularly in pandemic-like situations. Our pitch for Zika used to be, you know, Zika is obviously, you know, not that horrible of a disease. Most people aren't affected, but this is our test run for, you know, God forbid a pandemic comes down the line. And well, the pandemic did come, (laughs) but uh, I think it remains important to see diagnostics that are point of care that can scale up fairly quickly for um, novel viruses, obviously now more than ever. Transitioning a little bit to starting this company as an undergraduate, tell us about your experience in starting Group K Diagnostics as a student, and what were the advantages and disadvantages of being in this position? Sure. Um, So the first thing is, I think it's totally possible to start a company when you're towards the end of your undergraduate career, as long as you're managing your time properly. I had always been involved in a lot of research and I had also worked through school. So I knew how to manage my time. And I also 
quit my research job to focus more on this as well as to deal with any IP issues that I'd have from working on both at the same time. So I think it is possible, but you do have to know what your priorities are, know that you're going to miss out on college life in a lot of ways, and also acknowledge that this is going to take a lot of work. In terms of advantages, there obviously are resources that you have through university. People are a lot more willing to speak to you if they know that you're a student at a fellow university, if you're looking for product feedback. There is also a lot to be said of professors at your university being helpful, being able to take classes according to new things that you need to learn, grant opportunities or entrepreneurship resource opportunities that your university may have. The disadvantage is obviously people don't take you as seriously if you're still a full-time student, either because of your age or because of the fact that you know, you're splitting your time between your studies and working on a startup. And then the second, I think, being that you do miss out on a lot of aspects of college life. You are plunged into the real adult world, per se, very quickly. But I would say it's entirely worth it. 100%. I mean, I think at the end of the day, when you're passionate about an idea and you want to pursue it to the fullest, you have to make sacrifices. But I think in the end, it's it's worth it if that is what motivates you and drives you. An added layer to that as a student founder is being a sole founder and we don't come across that every single day. So how did you manage that? I certainly tried to find a co-founder several times, but because I had come up with the idea on my own and I had largely done a lot of that myself, it was difficult bringing somebody into the fold at that point. So I did try several times. It didn't really work out either. You know, people had different priorities or just weren't interested in pursuing it full time for entrepreneurship. It is a leap of faith that you have to take at some point or another. And I think with those two things combined, I realized, well, if I'm not going to find a co-founder, at least I can find a solid team. And, you know, teams have their ups and downs, just like co-founders do. But I think that was what really made us able to succeed. Now that team makeup and look has changed over the years. It's changed as the business's needs have changed, as the business has grown. But I think it's important for solo founders to have a strong team surrounding them to be able to delegate to and support them and serve as a sounding board. Now, as a young founder, how did you build or communicate your credibility to either people that you were trying to get on your team or to mentors or to potential investors, etc.? So science speaks for itself. You can tell from science whether or not something is accurate, whether the product is feasible, we really had it to that point by the time we had started looking for funding. So my next thing was to convince other scientists and physicians that this was a product that was needed and a product that had good data behind it. So a lot of our initial investors were physicians or physician scientists themselves. And then they were able to examine the product, see that the science spoke for itself, and then spread that credibility to others. Over time, obviously, that helped build up our investor base and our scientific credibility but also, I'd say for young founders, not to be scared to jump into the middle of things in their community. Just because you're young doesn't mean that you don't have something important worth sharing or that your voice is not valuable. So I really involved myself in my community, made my struggles known, made my successes known, and involved myself with other founders who were also in the biotech space or looking to make Philadelphia more of a home for startups. Now let's transition to regulatory because we did discuss the product, but 
getting that product through the FDA and other regulatory bodies is definitely a feat of itself. My first question is, how did you go about protecting your technology? So what was your IP strategy from a high level and sort of take us through the logistics involved? Sure. So we have a phenomenal patent attorney who specializes in microfluidics. So that makes our life a lot easier. So uh, a couple things that are important. One is know who you're talking to, know what your patent laws are in your country or where you want to file to make sure that you are not missing your chance to file. Secondly, we focus on four pillars, our manufacturing, our use cases, our different assays, as well as our design. And we went after all four of those. Our strategy continually changes as regulations change, as other works come into the field. But essentially, I think it's vital to spend money upfront on your patents and to make that a priority because it is essentially your IP in the end. At what point did you start going through this process and hiring a lawyer and spending your own money to protect this? So you only have a year from creation to file, so a year from presentation to file. So we started filing for patents in June of 2017. That was some of the first use of the pen money. And then we continue file patents today. Some of our first patents were granted a couple of months ago. We also pursue trademarks in certain cases, either on the company name or Chroma Health name that are also very important to us. How did you find your attorney? We interviewed several attorneys who specialized in the microfluidic space, and we just looked through local Philadelphia catalogs or other scientific catalogs that were available to us. Great. And tell us about sort of step one onward, the regulatory process required for your device. So the regulatory process for in vitro diagnostics is a 510k submission if your diagnostic fits into an existing classification. So the first thing is determining if you are a 510k. Once you determine that you're a 510k, you can proceed through the process of designing your device and developing your prototype. That step is controlled by the FDA. You do have to document in a design history file all of the changes you make, why you make those changes, why you design the device a certain way. You have to have good document control of all of the protocol changes you've made, all the protocols you've carried out, all of the prototype testing that's occurred. Once you get past all of that and you feel like you're confident in your working prototype, then essentially you sit through the 20 or 21 different sections that the 510K application holds. And you look for the relevant guidelines, either in CLSI documentation, which is an international standard, IEEE documentation, which is another um, international standard, or the CFR guidelines, which is um, a U.S. FDA-based standard, to see what needs to go into each one of those sections, not only for diagnostics, but for your specific type of diagnostic. So those are a lot of those tests that I mentioned earlier, like the testing against electronic waves or testing for method of comparison or reliability. And once you complete all of those, you put them into this packet. And this packet gets mailed to the FDA along with the CD copy of it. And then you work with them to make sure that you've completed all the studies that they're requiring and you can answer all of their questions. Okay. And just to clarify for listeners, so the 510K pathway allows you to have a, I guess it's a somewhat of an expedited pathway reliant on the fact that there is a predicate device or technology. Yes. So for diagnostics, to have a 510K application, your diagnostic just needs to fit into a list of commonly accepted diagnostic formulations. If that happens, your device does not have to be similar to another device. You just have to have your chemical formulas or your main reaction be similar. It's a little different than a standard 510K for a medical device versus a diagnostic. 
Okay. And one other question. So you're mentioning that you're interacting with the FDA. How did you first initiate contact with them? Or is this preliminarily you were looking, of course, online and through these various documents? But how did you make that first contact? So not specific to us, but there's two ways you can contact the FDA. You can set up a pre-submission meeting where you talk to them before you submit your 510K to make sure that you um, are going about it the right way. The second way to make contact with the FDA is just to go ahead with your submission and the first time they meet you is when you submit your product. It depends on what you're submitting, your company's position, and a variety of other factors, which one you go with. Okay. And you mentioned that your diagnostic is a class two. Can you clarify Mm -hmm. that for the listeners? Sure. So class one, two, and three are designations the FDA uses to classify how much risk a medical device has to a patient. Most in vitro diagnostics land in the class two space. Got it. And then final question is regarding consideration for CE mark or basically considering global market as, you know, a founder, you're probably thinking about like not only like the one month vision or goal, but also like the 10 year vision, 20 year vision of the company. And given the fact that I guess in the developing world, this technology could be very, very handy and beneficial. What is your consideration for the CE mark or other entrance into global market? Yeah, so our plan has always been to go through an FDA approval first, because that's transferable to a lot of other countries' approval processes, and then to pursue a CE mark and other regulatory approvals internationally after that. Got it, got it. And and just to round out this discussion about the regulatory process, do you have just any general advice for women that are trying to push a diagnostic through the FDA? Read, 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 and read some more. Um, read every single CLSI guideline that's applicable to you. Read every single CFR guideline that's applicable to you. If you follow those guidelines, you are literally following this pathway that the FDA has laid out for you, and you will be in much better shape if you do that. And do you think the FDA, like the website and how they laid things out, enabled you to have a central place to to read everything? Or did you have to like refer to other external resources as part of your reading? Oh, no, the CLSI documents, you have to buy them from their organization, and they cost hundreds of dollars per document. And you need several of those. It's not a central place at all. You read one code, and that code references five other codes. And then you go find those five other codes, and they reference 10 other codes. And eventually, you figure out where your body of work lies within, and then you focus on those layouts and codes. It's not a straightforward or clear process, but if you read all of the documents and you do follow the process, then you are following the pathway the FDA has set out. Understood. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) So you said that you're planning on filing in the fall. Is that correct, the timeline? We're planning on filing by the end of this year. End of the year. So once you filed and, you know, knock on wood, gain approval and such, you know, what is the the business model or like your go-to-market strategy for Group K? Right. So we already have our first client signed and we have done some work with them previously on trials. So we do have an idea of how we'll roll out. But the first thing after getting an approval is to make sure your manufacturing space is up to code, that you're ready to run, that you've made some batches without any issues, and then you're ready to release those batches. So we have a model in which we sell the actual physical cartridge, and then we supply the app to the provider for no cost. So we would begin by you know, doing in-service trainings, making sure that people are up to speed on our methods, 
and then deploying batches and iPhones to the clinic so that they go straight over to our system. Got it. And just to like break down the business model in terms of like customers, pricing model, ideal use case, can you can you kind of just like lay out the plan for Group K as far as you know at this point? Sure. So we sell to providers or provider groups who are looking for their office to be on our system. We charge a rate per cartridge that's below the price of reimbursement. And then physicians can submit for reimbursement to insurance companies to cover that cost. We would roll out primarily in physician clinics, specialty clinics, and urgent cares at this time, though we do have some applicability in hospitals as well. So tell us what the ideal use case is. Like, I'm a patient. Walk me through what is ideal. What is your vision for Group K Diagnostic? And paint a picture for us regarding patient and provider. Sure. So you're a patient. You're coming in because you have a chronic liver disease. Your, your doctor always orders liver function tests on you every time you come to see her. You see her every six months to monitor the function of your liver. So when you get your height and weight taken, which are kind of silly um, vitals to take, weight's obviously important, but none of us have really grown in the last couple of years, if I can uh, assume that. So instead of you know just taking those, they would also take a finger prick. And that finger prick would be placed on our device. The device would move with you to an exam room. And in 20 minutes, you would have results. So the average wait time for a patient in an American clinic in the room is anywhere from, you know, zero to 10 minutes. And the average provider visit is about 12. So towards the end of the provider's visit, she would scan the cartridge with the app. She would obtain quantitative results that would go directly to the EHR. And she'd be able to incorporate those with her physical exam into your treatment plan. So you'd walk out of that clinic knowing what adjustments needed to be made to your plan. Very timely advice and feedback for the physician because, as you had alluded to before, the patients are often sent off to go get their lab tests and then then they have to follow up and then it's just a huge headache for them and things get lost in translation. Or they're told to get their, their blood work done ahead of time, but they go the day before not realizing that their results won't reach a provider, you know, for another week. There is certainly a need for a, a point of care diagnostic like group K's. Now, this next question might be a little unfair, but I think for some people when they hear about this is that when they think, okay, a figure prick, like point of care and such, they might think of like companies like Theranos. What do you think about this? What are your thoughts on that? Because we all know about the story of Theranos and, and what happened there. So it would be interesting to hear your thoughts relative to what you've been doing with Group K. Sure. So we've always had a fight against the stigma of Theranos. I remember the first time I went to pitch, I didn't have glasses yet. And I was there was told, well, you're wearing a black shirt and you have blonde hair and you look like Elizabeth Holmes. So how is this not Theranos? Oh, oh. no. So that's a, whole oh, nother, no. <laughs> that, that's a whole nother conversation to have on the, the stigma of how people describe women. Um, but aside from that, I think our science speaks for ourselves. Our science, our expertise of the folks and our staff, the fact that we are not rushing to look for a loophole to deploy our tests without FDA approval, that we welcome the critique and approval of the FDA makes us stand out from Theranos. Also, Theranos technology was not microfluidic-based. It was just a shrunk-down lab in a box that didn't really work. Fair enough. Can we quickly delve into one aspect of what you said in terms of how women are perceived these sort of pitches and events? Can you just delve a little bit deeper into that? Sure. I mean, there obviously is gender bias against women in VC funding and angel funding. There's plenty of studies that support that fact. 
people often have concerns about women. Will they leave to start a family? Will they be taken as seriously? They look younger than they appear to be. A woman showing leadership qualities is called bossy, but a man is called um, a leader. So there's certainly all of that that's been well documented that, you know, there's an upward struggle against. I think, however, this issue has been coming more to the forefront. People have been talking about it more, both in an equality perspective, as well as the need for equality in VC funding. And there have been several women-specific funds that have been started to try and address this inequality that we see. But it goes beyond that. I mean, every VC is biased towards minority founders. And that goes beyond even just the VCs. But do minorities and women have the financial support they need to be able to start a business on their own if they don't have you know, family money or, or connections to rely upon for that round? A question I often get asked, well, where was your friends and family round? And I keep saying, well, no, there was no friends and family round. These were all angel investors that I had met for the first time raising for this company. People often fail to to grasp that and keep insisting, but where is the friends and family round? I think that Mm -hmm. speaks volumes, not just towards the position of women in entrepreneurship, but also other minorities. That is a very powerful and, and fair point in terms of they just assume that you are from a certain socioeconomic class that would enable you to have that friends or family around, but not many people that don't have that that luxury. So I think this is a good segue into talking about how you secured investment for Group K. Can you kind of just walk us through your thinking in terms of which path you pursued for raising money, like, a, you know, your VCs of the world, like your NEAs and such versus like angel investors and grants, et cetera. Sure. So with any kind of medical device company, you know, you're going to need VC money eventually. It's really hard to fund this just on angel money and grants um, without, you know, selling off or, or partnering with a larger established multinational corporation. So for us, we started with smaller angels and smaller angel groups who really got behind us. Like I mentioned, a lot of them were physicians or physician scientists themselves. From there, we went a little larger and the next round had some family offices in it, a larger angel group, some high net worth individuals. And that has been our existing base of investors to this day. A lot of them really believe in the mission. They believe in the need. They see it in their own communities or in their own families. And that has made them significant and continued supporters, both financially, as well as with their own connections and resources. Post FDA approval, we will seek traditional VC funding as that's necessary in terms of the amount needed to scale up manufacturing and traditional commercial operations. And how how have your relationships with those first investors, those first angel investors impacted your business and how you thought about the organization moving forward? Sure. I mean, some of those first investors are the ones who continue to lend us credibility as we sought new investors because they had done the due diligence and examined the technology themselves. They continue to support us both financially or with connections, either finding supplies or clinical partnerships or you know funding partnerships. So I'd very much say a good investor is worth twice their money and a bad investor is worth none of their money. Given all of your successes in starting a healthcare diagnostics company as someone who's so young, what advice would you have for our listeners who want to follow in your footsteps and start a life sciences company of their own? Sure. I would say it is certainly a rewarding profession. You see a lot of impact. You get to create jobs, which I feel like isn't talked enough about in this current economic climate is 
being able to create jobs in your community is something to really acknowledge and to appreciate. But that said, it doesn't come out without its own share of responsibility. There's you're responsible for people who work for you. You're responsible for legal and ethical matters. Entrepreneurship is not something to be stepped into lightly. I think I was unaware of what entrepreneurship was when I stepped into it. And also the understanding that this isn't a step in and step out quickly. You're, you're in this for the long haul most of the time. And the flash stories you see on the news aren't always, you know, what typically happens. Very true. Thank you so much, Brianna. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.